I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A collective, world-willing podcast about dynamic, fantastical, and concise storytelling. I'm Alicia, and I'm here by myself today because this is one of our one-off Law and Order episodes, which pretty much means I'm going to be sitting here and doing kind of a deep dive into some of my own personal world-building, and that's going to be the entire episode. So, unfortunately, no story, no section three this time. If that's not your jam, that's all good. The reason why I'm doing this by myself is because this is actually going to be for one of my Dungeons & Dragons worlds, which Alice will be playing in. So of course I didn't want him uh, weighing in on the process when this is my world. That sounds rude, but yeah, you, you know what I mean. So I do have the main premise for this world already designed. So this episode I'm mostly going to be going into the details of it. This is actually developing a world from just an idea and making it feel more realistic. But I am going to start off by telling you how I developed this idea. I think, uh, and you will have probably picked this up by now, I think tone is one of the most important things in a world. It makes it feel consistent and um, more immersive if, if there is a solid tone that can be felt throughout the world. And so all the decisions that I'm going to be making towards the creation of this world, I'm going to try to make sure they reflect the tone that I am going for. Now, the original idea for this world just came from my own experience playing D&D in that I'm not a huge fan of combat. Some people absolutely love it, and that's cool. But um, just in my experiences as a player, combat is often... Uh, a bit of a time filler. They're they're not always, at least most of the time, they're not always super relevant to the plot. Um, And I just don't engage with combat as much as I do with the overarching story. It's the role play that I'm usually there for. So the idea for this world is basically that this society that I'm going to be building is very, very non-violent. Now, this is a difficult thing to achieve. A world in a society, a group of people that are as peaceful as possible is (laughs) difficult to create. Um, (laughs) Our world being a good example. Um, So this is going to be quite a challenge for me, trying to develop a system that is sustainable. And I think in the end, this game is pretty much going to be a stress test of this system that I've devised. Because, of course it's not going to be perfect. There are downfalls to having uh, a non-violent civilization. But that is the premise that I'm going to be exploring. Now, I have already created a map for this world, which I'm sure is probably a problematic point for some people, developing a map for your world. And one big recommendation of mine is getting a random map generator and using that. There is no shame in that whatsoever. It's what I do all the time. That's that's how I build my world. This one, however, was slightly different and is a bit of an odd story. That um, Basically, um, my bedside table is one that I found on the side of the road. Uh, the top of it had quite a bit of water damage um, and looked real nasty, and so I decided to try and fix it up a bit. So I sanded down the top and I spray painted it 
But even after that, the water damage was still evident enough that the surface of it was all bumpy. And I thought, ugh, even after the spray paint, it still doesn't look great. But the curves in the top kind of remind me of, like, lakes and mountains of a map. So I decided to trace around them all, and I ended up painting the top of my bedside table to look like a map. And as I was drawing up this map, I decided to start naming all these different little towns and lakes, different cutesy names that popped up into my head. And eventually I just had a map. Um, I'm a big fan of just naming things after actual things. So like all of the, the lakes and oceans and stuff like that are named after different types of sweeteners. So there's like maple and honey and molasses. Uh, so they're all they're all very cute. So eventually I, I just built this map that had a very cutesy aesthetic to it. And that coupled with my idea for this world slowly started to build the tone of it that it was uh, this world is very very soft and kind of pastel colored it's got a bit of a studio ghibli vibe to it and once i had that tone more and more ideas started to spring to mind about this world and so i am now going to go through a list of world development points that i've come up with and apply this tone to them to help me generate the details of this world. Now usually when I build a world, I don't go into heaps of detail. Because sometimes the overplanning of it lets you down when you run it in a D&D game. That you create some really cool things that your players never discover and it can let you... It can be upsetting. But this world, I am making more for the love of making it than to run this game. If I never run this game, then I'm still going to be happy with this world. So I am happy to put some effort into to generating this society. Because um, if it never gets discovered, I still love it. So, pardon me if you hear rustling of papers. There's going to be a lot of me writing down stuff in this. Um, uh, there's also construction going on outside my house, which is just, unfortunately, unavoidable. <laughs> okay, so, um, this list of different um, general world building points is up on the Discord. Now, not all of them might be pertinent to a world you're creating and some of the stuff that you might need might be on this list because though a lot of it I think is important stuff to figure out some of them are specific to my world but um let's jump into it my first thinking in building this is that if we're going to have a society that is peaceful I think you need to have a reason for that kind of society to come about because because people learn things through experience. So I think for them to develop a peaceful society, they have to have known what a non-peaceful society was like. So the idea for this is that a couple hundred years ago, there was an absolutely awful, devastating war in this land that decimated most of uh, the population. And these are the few survivors that have started to build this world on the premise that we will never do that again. And every action we take will be to try and uh, preserve peace in this society that we will never go back to a state like that again because it was so, so horrific. Okay, but now getting into some of the more details on it, I'm pretty much just going to work my way down this list. The first one on the list is the main goods that are generated in different areas. So um, I decided that there isn't going to be a monetary system in this world. Um, there are very few people, it's a very small population, which um, I, I think is a lot easier than to run a mostly trade-based system. So what, how it's going to work is that all the people in this world are required to have some sort of skills um, and whatever goods they produce or services they provide are traded for other goods. So a lot of time is spent trading with people to try and get what you need, to get what you need, to give to someone else. Uh, uh, it's a big side quest, but people just accept that that's the way it's got to be because they have learned that money is awfully uh, corrupt. It uh, is one of the big factors that led to the destruction in the first place. So if they can avoid doing that again, they will. So, uh, the main goods that are generated in different areas, so we're going to be thinking different types of um, 
different types of food, uh, different types of cloth and stuff for clothing, um, different building materials, and so on. So uh, what I'm, the way I'm going to do this is pretty much I'm going to draw up a table with all of the different towns and uh, cities um, in the area and write down a type of resource that they harvest. Or it mightn't even be specifically to that town, or it just might be uh, nearby that there is a, a set of uh, mountains up in the north of this world uh, where a lot of tea is produced. There aren't any there aren't any uh, towns up there, but the closest one is Pansy. So people around there will travel up to the hills to do their work and then come back to town. So that is going to be related to that town. Something important, uh, something else that's important to think about is that some of these places might generate things. For example, I've got the town of Hither and the Citadel of Light. They are rather big towns or they are um, centred between others so there will be trade points so it doesn't necessarily mean that lots of resources are generated there but it's a good focal point where people will travel there uh, where big markets are set up to trade things uh, looking at the map that's up on the discord might be helpful just while I'm talking about this so you know what towns I'm referring to but you don't have to if you don't want to. But I'm thinking um, environments are going to come in uh, play a big factor in this for example Robin uh, which is right in the center of the world, is set in a forest. So one of their big exports is going to be wood and timber for uh, the building of um, of furniture and stuff like that. So Robin's main export is uh, going to be different types of wood. Um, then looking at their uh, the main citadel, it's called the Citadel of Light. Uh, it is situated in a... a massive mountain so its main export is going to be stone and gems uh it's just the logical conclusion to draw from that now the thing is there might be other resources there such as um coal and stuff like that but then again uh from their past it's probably something um they'd mine in short supply if at all um knowing the kind of then effect that these um, resources will have if if used too much. Uh, this war, when I talk about it, isn't necessarily a full fantasy battle. I'm talking a nuclear war. This, uh, I think they were a very advanced civilization that now have purposefully reduced themselves back to basics because they know that that's the most sustainable way of life. Okay, I'm going to say just because mistletoe is far away from too many landmarks, I'm going to say that's more of a desert-like area. Um, they're going to be uh, exporting more spices and stuff like that. Um, quite a few of my worlds often don't have spices because in your typical fantasy world, um, the landscape that um, generates that kind of resource doesn't normally fit into a fantasy aesthetic, I don't think. But in this world, I can do whatever I want. I mean, you can do whatever you want in any world that you're building. But in this one, I just like the idea of of them using spices to make apple pies and stuff like that. I think it fits the aesthetic, so I'm going to make it work. I think the tone is more important than a very logical system for this. Okay, what's next? Comet is right by the ocean, so I'm going to say they are a big fishing community. I'm going to say both Spruce and Wren uh, generate different types of um, natural fibres used to make clothes. I'm going to say Spruce is more along the lines of cotton and stuff like that, whereas um, Wren is going to generate clothes that are more woven from plant fibres. Um, so later I, I'm planning to get into the kind of clothes that these people wear that is going to be a big part of that. But then plant fibers and stuff like that would also be used for building boats and baskets and stuff like that. Pansy um, is used for the generation of lots of wheat and teas. I think though Hither is predominantly a trade town. Uh, they also do a bit of dealing in pelts and uh, meats and stuff like that because they are kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's a good, I don't know, it's a good spot for hunting, I reckon. 
And I reckon seed is going to be another good hunting spot as well. Now I'm sure there are heaps of resources that I have forgotten about, but as soon as I think of another one that these people are going to need, I'm just going to pick a location that I reckon works and add it to the list. Okay, so there's stuff like the designations of each town, which is pretty much deciding this is a capital city, uh, this one is uh, a town, uh, this one is a village, depending on the different size of it and perhaps uh, the role it plays in the societal ecosystem. It's not necessarily a huge point, but I think it's a good thing to have a general idea of. But another very big one, and it's probably one of the most important points in this one, is um, governmental system. I have really had a been thinking for a while about this one and it can certainly change because I don't think it's perfect but my idea is that um, this world is mostly governed by a council and it is I'm going to try and make it as democratic as I can so the way it's going to work is that each of the towns has uh, a mayor someone who lives within the town and does their best to focus on the issues within the town and uh, make sure everyone is cohabiting uh, well and that everything is just working smoothly. Then there is also going to be um, a, I don't know what title to give this person yet, but like an advocate. This person travels from the town to council meetings where each advocate from the town from the towns will form this council to discuss larger overarching issues that affect the whole world. Now, the issue comes into play here that because these people um, have influence over the whole world, they can't necessarily have you need to minimize the bias they have towards their own goals. So I think becoming one of these advocates is a bit of a sacrifice that when you do this, uh, you stay in a town for a year being their advocate and after that year, they all rotate and move to a different town. So you are living there and you're immersed in there for the time, but you, you cannot then make rules for the overarching world to affect the place where you are living because you are not always going to be living there. On top of that, before you can become an advocate, you must have had some kind of experience in lots of different types of cities, uh, in lots of different types of towns. You need to have lived in some of the more rural towns where there aren't as many people. You need to, you need to have lived in, um, in the citadel and in trade towns. Uh, so that you can gain experience uh, in the different cultures, um, the different cultures um, of this society. Um, and you need to have gained experience with all different levels of people. Um, pretty much you need to be able to uh, prove before you become an advocate that you have a great understanding of all the people of this world and their needs. And making sure you've had that experience is, uh, kind of ensures that in this role you can empathize and you have the, you have all people in mind when you're making decisions. It's, it's a big thing. It's a lot of work to be an advocate, but I think it's going to, it's going to be one of the easiest ways to, to make sure that these decisions are made with as little bias as possible. Uh, now, of course, there comes into play the issue of that these people probably have families that are in a particular town that they might want to try and help. And I don't know if that's really an issue that I can solve. I, I think them having experience in lots of different places is going to minimize that, give, giving them perspective that their family is okay, or at least knowing that um, this job that they're doing, they can send back resources to help those families but I can only do my best with this. It, designing a perfect world is very difficult and this is a very, very small scale one and it's even pr proving to be pretty tough for me. But so far, that is the idea. Um, mind you, if you have any ideas as to how I can make this system better, please let me know because I am... I'm pretty much interested to run this D&D game as a stress test to see if this system works. Of course, it wouldn't nearly work on our um, uh, in our world, 
Because we've just got way too many people. I think I think this will be interesting. So, when you're developing your governmental system, I think it's important to know the priorities of the people of your world. Because um, in, in choosing this, I thought I've either got to go as democratic as possible or I have to choose a single leader to make decisions. Um, because when I spoke to people, that's what they told me was the easiest ways to have um, peaceful civilizations. They usually, when you have a single leader, uh, people are m- more comfortable following uh, what they want to do. I, I have, n- I don't have much knowledge on different governmental systems. I'll be honest. So I'm taking a lot of people's advice on this. My dad kind of helped me to generate this idea for this governmental system. But I think taking in the history of your world and um, the the goals of your uh, populations is important when choosing a governmental system. Next up is trade. Um, so I've pretty much picked out a few. We've got two main trade points, which are Hither and the Citadel of Light. Um, so that's a good starting place that people will travel there to trade stuff. And... The way it's basically going to work is that in each of the towns, the main thing they trade is kind of like a keystone, like a cornerstone of, okay, so you want five apples, that's worth one um, one log of wood or something. If, if wood is the main thing that they trade there, it's kind of um, th- how they judge things in that point. But everything is done by trade, and that's... It can get complicated because of that. If I have apples and I want a pair of shoes and I go to the shoe person and I say, hi, I have five apples. I would like some shoes, please. And they're like, well, I don't want apples. I want some bread. You need to go to the bread person and say, hi, I have five apples. I would like some bread, please. And the bread person says, well, I don't want any apples, but I need some fabric. So you go to the fabric person and you need to go on like that. And it's difficult But I think the thing is these people have been doing it for long enough that they've kind of got the hang of it. When I'm recording this, um, I have actually already recorded a session of uh, my players developing their characters. And they aren't super ingrained in the society, they're both kind of outlanders. And each of them, well one of them at least, their their skill, um, the resource that they create is a very expensive and um, highly prized item. So they need to, they trade one maybe a year. And so they usually have to gather food and stuff like that by themselves. So the resources they get um, are likely um, new clothes and rope and stuff like that for them to help on their journey. I think this kind of trade system is going to be difficult for us to uh, completely wrap our heads around because it is so different to what we normally use but it's one of those things that I think I just like the idea of and so it works I'm just gonna say that it works and we'll see how it goes in game I just I just like the aesthetic of it mostly just the idea of not having money uh, <laughs> okay now the next one is quite specific to my world um, because um, I have, uh, this world develops within the multiverse of many of the stories that I've created. And this world um, uh, is a very special type of world that it is very small and its day-night system is a bit different in that a day lasts, a day and a night last for a very, very long time. But they are slowly speeding up, by which I mean uh, when this war ended, uh, a, a day lasted for like 10 years and while these people are playing while these guys are playing in it it's lasting for maybe a month still a month is a long time for a day to last but pretty much just then how it works is that for a month there is sunlight always and then for a month there is darkness always so these people will have developed different resources and techniques for dealing with that such as Um, during the day, products that, um, like sleep masks and stuff like that will become a popular product that is created to help people, uh, sleep during the day. Or maybe they have rooms in their houses that don't have windows and are completely blocked off from the outside to help them sleep. I reckon at night, there will be different types of bioluminescent 
plants that are planted along pathways and stuff for people to follow. So because you have to do trade and you have to travel between towns when it is dark, um, there would be these bioluminescent plants that stretch from town to town to help lead people. There'll be different types of lanterns that are generated. I reckon uh, there's probably a type of gem that's mined in the Citadel of Light that um, you can light on fire and it uh, it burns for weeks. This is little ruby that you can light on fire that, that people keep in a lantern in their home and they use that as as a bit of original fire to, to light different torches and stuff that they carry around. So little ideas like this uh, which are going to just add a little bit more flavour to the, my world. I'm going to develop more of these little ideas, but I think these basic ones are a good start and just that idea I can extrapolate, extrapolate out into more little features of this world. So if you have any ideas of cool ways they'd handle it, always being day or always being night, hit me up because <laughs> help would be lovely, but still. <laughs> Um, okay, I kind of already looked into different environments vaguely. I think I'm having some kind of more desert-like areas out um, to the northwest, and we've got more forests around the center. Looking at my map, you can kind of see that we're almost situated in a bit of a valley with mountains surrounding a lot of the outside. So I think uh, within that, it's going to be quite warm. There's quite a bit of rain. There's a few forests and kind of rainforesty areas. Um... Uh, there's lots of grasslands I reckon up to the north um, yeah but overall it's not a super super complex environment because it's quite small um, I wanted it to be reasonably consistent I really really apologize for those roadworks out there it has been going for weeks and is driving me insane and unfortunately there is just no other time that I can record so I apologize <laughs> In fact, I might actually just pause here um, and I might have a go at recording again later, hopefully when they've calmed down a little bit, uh, but I will be back. Okay, hopefully that construction's going to hold out for a little while. <laughs> uh, next on my list is uh, the education system. I think education in this world is super important. I think these people understand that the only way that they can um, correct their past is to understand it to the best of their ability. So I think a big um, a big part of their education is learning as much as these people know about the war and the, the steps they take to overcome it. I think they put a lot of focus on education. I think it's likely that what happens um, that education systems they would strive to make free. In fact... I think they would attempt to try and reward people for sending their children to school as an encouragement to make sure that everyone is educated. Pardon my phone. So I think there'd be a uh, section of um, quote-unquote harvest that people need to donate as like a government fund that is paid back to students and stuff um, to help them uh, cover this cost of going to school. So people people practically get paid to go to school as incentive to learn. I imagine then uh, beyond this basic um, schooling, people also need to learn their skills in life, the, the skills that they're going to learn to make resources uh, to put towards trade. I imagine most people probably have a family business that they learn. I have written... Uh, Pardon, pardon the, pardon the noise. Um, I have written a short story already about a young woman who works on um, a tea farm in tea fields. Um, that is a family business. So I imagine um, that inherited skills is probably a big thing. But if someone is pa is personally very passionate about some kind of work, I think it's encouraged that they pursue that. So perhaps there's government funding for some kind of um, apprenticeship fee. So if someone wants to be an apprentice under you, the government will supply them with resources to help to pay that apprentice while they are learning. 
this is all just coming off the top of my head by the way and it is I think a bit of a difficult system to maintain but hell I gonna try <laughs> I think there's also a rehabilitation system because I think very importantly in this world is that of course they're non-violent but that doesn't mean there aren't people who disagree with that there are people who are going to break that societal norm. There are people who are going to break societal norms no matter what they are. Um, because one way or another, there's going to be someone in the society who feels like this reality is constraining them and they want to break free of that. Or so there are going to be people who commit crimes. It just There are still going to be things like murder and theft and so on. And I don't think these people necessarily believe in incarceration if these... They, I think they understand that if someone does something like this, there is a reason for it. And so they put a lot of work into rehabilitation, to helping, helping them to be educated and, and figuring out why they, they um, did this thing in the first place so they can help to solve that problem. So figuring an, a an actual system for that is something I'm going to work on, but I think that's something I'll do in my spare time. So, one point that I haven't mentioned in this world is that, first of all, it is very, very small. There, it, um, the map that can be seen on the Discord is the entire world. It is just this valley, and that's it. Not to mention that, but beyond that, and the entire sky is all white. It slowly fades to this white mist. Um, and that's just the reality of their world. I think it's just a bit of a different dynamic to play with and I thought it was interesting. But sometimes, uh, and with increasing frequency, creatures come out of this mist. Uh, very awful, uh, violent creatures that are basically just animalistic, generated by the void. And these people need a way to deal with them. And that's one of the biggest problems of this world is that how does a non-violent civilization deal with a violent incursion such as this? Because these creatures just want to kill people. Some of them probably want to eat them. But these people need to figure out a way to deal with it. Um, so I think there is a lot of effort in trying to figure out just ways of containing them. Some ways of almost taming them. Yeah, so... Most of the efforts, I think, are put towards finding a way to properly capture them um, to the best of their ability. And I think so far, it's been mostly unsuccessful. I think whenever a wave of these creatures comes to the world, lots of people die. And probably people do resort to violent means and eventually have to kill these creatures just out of survival. But it is something they're desperately trying to avoid and trying to find an alternative to. So I think that's probably something that is going to be explored if I, even when I run this as a D&D &D game, is how you capture these things and if there's a way to tame them and or cure them, considering we don't really know what these creatures are. I think they probably think there is a way to quote-unquote cure them of this uh, violence, um, that these animalistic behaviours can be can be tamed in a way. So other basic things to figure out are things like um, historical sites that um, even though this war happened reasonably recently, this world is quite old and there would be important historical sites. For example, there might be the remnants of um, an old part of a city that was left over in um, the times of their modern civilization. There might be leftover remnants of churches or um, important cultural locations. Or there might even be remnants of buildings and architecture that they don't know what they mean anymore, but have been um, refurbished to be spiritual places like that. And leading into that, a big part of a world, I reckon, is religions and deities. I think it's something that people often overlook in world building, but religion is a huge part of society. This world has such a, a scary past, 
and with the incursions of these creatures, I think people would find some kind of faith to find hope in. I think it's a natural part of humanity to find something to comfort you, and religion is that for a lot of people. So what I'm pretty much going to do is make a list of different aspects of this world, like nature and light and the void that surrounds their world of even things like food, which is very important to them, and clothing, and make different gods um, related to these different areas. There'd be ones for things like hearth and home, because your community is very important to you. But in this as well, there'd also be a range of different alignment of gods, that there would be very um, good and lawful gods, as well as evil ones. Uh, Now I'm thinking there probably aren't going to be a huge pantheon of gods, mostly because this is just a small world, and I think if there were a lot of gods, it would be very, very chaotic, and I'm just not getting that sense from this world. So I'll probably maybe have four or five, maybe even only one evil god, but it's all going to come out when I develop more of the, the aspects of this world that these gods can inhabit. So there are also some little basic things like the most important laws, because of course there are law systems that everyone here follows, and they're basically things like do not commit a violent act without absolute um, self-defense in mind or defense of one's family, and even then I think violence is socially frowned upon. Things like not stealing, I, I think they really value um, helping others, that if someone asks for your assistance or if you see someone in need you should do your best to try to help them but I don't think it's something they'd put in writing because they also understand that people have their own situations that they need to think of but as everything in this world the laws need to affect the history of the world and the goals of the people so I need to think about what they believe is going to encourage their people to be non-violent and understanding and what kind of laws are going to discourage acts that could eventually lead to the reformation of uh, the state of their world they were in before this war, that eventually led to this war. One of my points which I think is very, very important is the treatment of minorities, uh, because you judge a society and how well they're doing by how they treat uh, their minorities and the people um, who are suffering the most. So this is including um, different races of people, which is very, very literal in this world, in that there aren't actually any humans, they're all very different races, like Kenku and Dragonborn and um, Asimar and so on. Uh, how you treat uh, people of different sexualities, so LGBTQIA plus people, uh, people with disabilities and so on. I think they probably have quite a big focus on trying to make sure that there isn't discrimination and any um, accusations of discrimination in any way are taken very seriously because they understand that when people start to be left behind, people of different groups, when they start to be excluded and discriminated against, that is the first sign of a world becoming unequal and uh, a lack of equality is the first sign that a society isn't functioning well and so on and so on. But the thing is because this is in the recent aftermath of a war I think there probably are still prejudices against certain races. I mean years ago these people were fighting each other So there are groups that probably still dislike each other to a certain extent, and I need to determine which they are. It's usually, I think, in fantasy worlds, uh, different races that don't like each other, and I think that is usually um, an easier way to go in building this. So perhaps I need to... It's a matter of digging deeper into the lore of this world, into the history of this war, figuring out who was opposing who, what the actual war itself was specifically about, though I don't think it's that simple. 
Um, I don't think war ever really is that simple. It's not black and white. But figuring out the origins of the war is going to help me discover what prejudices still remain and then how those people are treated and how those situations are handled. Oh, we've got uh, most and least respected professions. That's an interesting one. I think that's going to then stem from uh, resources. What resources are most highly prized? So probably things like um, carpenters are very highly prized um, because how else are you going to get furniture and stuff? Uh, (laughs) um, People who make food and clothing, those basic necessities. But I think think if you're seen to put... um, a high amount of skill and effort into anything you're making, you're well liked. But it's a it's a matter of I suppose what are the doctors and the lawyers of this world the the job your parents hope you're going to get. Yeah, so I think it is probably going to end up being those basic resources are highly prized because making food, making clothes, making furniture is something that is always going to be needed and it is always going to generate a pretty good income because everyone needs those kinds of resources. I think things like teachers are very well respected because everyone understands how important education is. The uh, workers who work in rehabilitation centres are very well respected because they understand that that kind of help and care uh for people is very important for maintaining this society and this next these next few topics are some of my favorite ones uh we've got pastimes hobbies entertainment and music there is a game uh that was created by world building notes uh i can't remember the game uh the name of the game it's it's called like uh blooming flowers or blooming cloth and it's a really cool idea for a game and I've actually had a go at making it myself. It didn't work out too well but I'm gonna have another go. Um, There's a link to it in the discord of this YouTube video and I just really really love this idea so I think I'm gonna take this idea for a game, twist it a little bit to uh, whatever resources are most popular or easy to craft in this world and create a game from that. And totally I think in world building Pick your favourite things, twist them a little bit to fit the aesthetic and put them in your world. For example, um, another point that I have here is food. I really love cooking and there is a recipe that I found a few weeks ago that I made it and I thought, wow, this feels like it fits in my world. It's like um, a soup that's got pasta uh, and beans and carrots in it and stuff and it's just really simple but it's really flavourful and I think it suits my world so I think they probably make lots of soups and pastas and stews stuff like that things that can be made in bulk and reasonably easily easily distributed Uh, and so they they make a lot of things like uh, wheat and um, they grow a lot of root vegetables that can all be put into these stews and things like stews and soups are really easy starting blocks to make lots of different variations and I think in a in a nice little simple world like this that's very fitting but looking back at pastimes and hobbies I need to again I think look at the kind of resources that there are in this world a big thing with world building is starting off with the basics of an idea of environments and the aesthetic you're building um, a little bit about the history and you derive everything from that if you're stuck you kind of just logic your way out of any problem that you run into. So stuff like music, well, we've got people who make, um, who generate a lot of wood, so we can probably, there'd probably be lots of things like little wooden pan pipes, lots of woodwind instruments. I don't know, I love things like lutes and harps and stuff like that. I think that would be interesting, but I'd need to think of where they could get the strings from. Perhaps they can make them from the hair of certain animals. Or they, hey, they have um, lots of um, plant fibers and stuff like that. They might be able to stretch out to use for strings. That could be interesting. But perhaps because they're a plant-based fiber, they make a slightly different sound. And so that creates the type of uh, music. I think there's um, 
I think there's a big focus on music that people try to learn lots of different instruments and gather around to make lots of different sounds. They they like forming little groups with lots of different instruments in them um, because I think these people have a big sense of community and that's reflected then in their music. Well, as one point of hobbies, there are lots of lots lots and lots of lakes in this world. In the very center of it is one massive lake that is actually three smaller connected ones. So I think things like swimming and sailing are a big thing that people do. Even like things like uh, snorkeling to a certain extent. I think people like um, going into the lakes and exploring the bottom of them. And uh, with lakes and stuff that it have lots of rocks at the bottom, I think people spend a lot of time painting rocks and maybe that then plays into different games that they play. I think uh, there are, they grow lots of wheat here and there are lots of grass fields, so maybe a game that children play is uh, that in the tall grass or in the tall wheat they have to crawl around on their hands and knees and it's almost like um, a game of tag but you've got to try and move as quietly as possible so as to not rustle the grass. You're trying to sneak up on each other. And then maybe there's a variation of this where you use the bioluminescent plants um, and you have to run around and tag people, almost like almost like a mixture of tag and, and laser tag, but you've got to, um, you, you make this kind of bioluminescent paint from the plants that you have to run up and slap someone with. Um, and whoever has the least light the least light paint on them at the end of this is the winner so lots of little games like that that are derived from aspects of the world okay and then the next one i think is an interesting thing to explore beauty standards and fashion figuring out beauty standards i think is a difficult thing especially because this this world is full of so many different races um that of course they can't all be held to the same standard because they all look so very different and each race has their own idea of beauty. So I think beauty is more seen not necessarily how you look but how you dress yourself. I'm going, we've already mentioned that there are two main different ways of making clothes from these more cotton-based fibers and more plant-based. Well, cotton is a type of plant. But when I say plant-based, I mean from like the stems of very soft, flexible plants that are then woven. They just create a different um, a different quality of fabric. So I think each different town will probably have their own kind of style where like um, things like the Citadel probably because there are a lot more people. Um, there's a stronger... Um, economy there uh, because there's so much trade people might prefer more ruffles and stuff like that because they can afford more fabric maybe the people of uh, Wren that live right near a lake uh, that has lots of stones in it maybe they have lots of uh, buttons on their clothes that are that are carved from these uh, small stones uh, maybe the people uh, the people of mistletoe probably don't wear as many clothes because they live in a more arid climate so um, and because of the different plant variations there um, maybe the a lot most of them wear skirts that are made from made from more dried plants and most of them probably don't wear shirts and stuff like that uh, the people of pansy that live right near uh, the mountains might wear more clothes when they have to uh, travel up into the hills to make tea it gets colder and then you've also got to look at what kind of colors they have available to them the people um, in the the north east side of the world that live more in um, open fields that have access to more flowers probably wear more colorful clothes because these flowers are used to make dyes they're mashed up to make different types of dyes Uh, people in the citadel of light also probably um, have more access to gems because that's where they're mined so they might have more um, sparkly clothes and that gives them more color as well uh, and the people of mistletoe then might uh, use the red and yellow sands in their uh, clothes in some way. Now, some of the rest of my points um, 
kind you kind of develop by osmosis that all this work I've done so far you can kind of figure out the aesthetics of each of the worlds you can start to figure out the population by the kind of stuff that they make um figuring out different uh, popular locations in each town by what is regarded as popular pastimes in those towns but a big thing uh the last main things that I want to figure out on my last three points the technology level I think these people were once very um, had very high levels of technology. They had lots of advancements and they purposefully limit themselves knowing that trying to advance too far eventually leads to their downfall, which ties into an idea I had for a, a section three last night watching an episode of Doctor Who, but I'll get into that in another episode. <laughs> so I think these people probably uh, have levels of they know how to they can purify water um, they know how to make electricity but I think they don't I think they understand that having life a little bit harder just using a uh, fire and a little bit of oil is they can get by with that and they have learned to just use that and they are content with that mind you of course there'll be people who break those norms and so there are probably people in the world who have still utilized this old technology so I'm going to end up probably having this fantasy world with a few renegades who have guns and stuff which is going to be an awesome aesthetic clash but I'm down for it and one thing that I find very interesting and a link to a video that uh, I watched that chatted about it a bit is different type of magic and the limits of magic. I've got to decide whether I want to have a soft magic system or a hard magic system. Now, of course, this is D&D, and so there are set spells and stuff like that. But I've already mentioned with my players that I don't think magic is quite as prevalent, almost as if the world is still in recovery from this war, that so much magic was used during it, so much was expended to make these weapons that it's like, the earth itself or or that the magic was drawn from the world um, and so much so that it is weak now and there isn't as much magic I think it is it is still used but it's not super prevalent now choosing a hard or a soft magic system in case you don't know what that means I will link some videos but it's pretty much the distinction between um, how hard the lines are as to what you can and can't do with magic for example worlds like Lord of the Rings. The magic system there is super soft because Gandalf's a wizard. He can do magic, uh, but beyond that, we don't really know what his limitations are. Um, he just kind of does stuff. And that's okay, because in that world, that works. It super fits it. I think having a hard magic system wouldn't work in that situation. So I think to figure this out, I need to figure out where, well, we know now that magic probably comes from the world itself. It's this natural life force that uh, provides people with magic. I think it's probably going to be somewhat in the middle. I think I want it to be reasonably soft, that magic is kind of a mysterious force, that the idea of magic and the use of it became so twisted in the last years of the war that the people don't really understand the basics of it anymore, the fundamentals of how it works. And it's so drained that it is kind of shifted now and that people know that they have some kind of abilities and they can do different things with them. And they've kind of figured out that, okay, I can make this hand appear and it can go over and pick stuff up for me, but I don't really know how it works. And I think this could be interesting because I think it'd be cool if people can modify these spells, that if you experiment enough, you can alter them in some ways. So... Uh, there's a lot of magic experimentation, I think, of uh, find you when you find a spell and you know how it works, of twisting it to be able to do different things, of making that hand go a little bit further or making it stronger to pick up more stuff, but then that comes with disadvantages and stuff as well. And you, I think something that's very important is, of course, limits. Magic, need to, magic needs to have limits for it to feel realistic and so people don't go super OP because weakness, well, quote-unquote weaknesses are what make things more interesting because if everyone was Superman, everything would be boring. No one's super if everyone's super. So I think the limits of this magic are is that it's very weak. Um, 
I think that is probably a good representation of spell slots in D&D, that you have spell slots not necessarily because that's all the magic you can cast, it's because the world doesn't have any more to give past that. The limitation is how much you can cast it, and probably the limit of the knowledge that people just don't know much about magic. It's new for them, and when you don't have knowledge on something, um, you can't use it very well. And then my final point that I want to get into, because I think it is especially in a very um, community-based world, how people communicate and transport are very important. So this is an idea that one of my friends used in one of their worlds that I love, is uh, the idea that there is a probably... Uh, people in each town or village that are tasked with traveling around, meeting as many people as possible, and they use the sending spell, uh, and they are like the sending person of that turn. If you don't know sending or you don't know D&D, sending is pretty much a spell that someone can cast that if you know someone, uh, if you know them, doesn't matter how far away they are, you can send a message to them of 25 words, and then they can send a reply of 25 words. So this person is then tasked with going around and meeting as many people as possible, so you can pretty much hire them to send a message to anyone. So there's these little sending wizards in each town that are used as a communication link. Now, of course, I think this is probably mostly used uh, for urgent things, because, of course, magic is quite limited. So I imagine uh, that just like telegrams and letters are probably a main form of transport. And it's usually understood that um, people who are trading between towns, when people are traveling, they are perhaps tasked with transporting these letters. Or maybe, here we go, I think there is probably like a courier, a person who acts as a courier in each town. And when they need to transport letters, they are required to travel with people who are traveling in between each town for trade. So when a courier has letters to transport and there's someone going to the next town over to trade apples, the person who's trading the apples has to let the courier go with them. Um, On top of that, something that um, I've done is that my co-host gave me an awesome Christmas present, which was pretty much a drawing challenge where I draw three different prompt words whenever I want to draw something and I mash those up and turn them into a creature. And each of these creatures I'm I'm designing, I've decided exist in this world. And one of the ones I recently desired, designed was kind of a horse-like equivalent. Um, I'll put up pictures of each of these creatures, but I reckon these creatures are the kinds that are used to uh, pull wagons and stuff like that and will occasionally be used individually if uh, messages need to be sent and there aren't any trade vehicles available and so on and um, perhaps these are the kind of animals that advisors it was advisors the word I used advocates that was it Um, that advocates use to travel between towns and so on And then that kind of covers transport again. I think um, if you can afford to hire uh, one of these creatures, you can ride on those. You can sometimes pay trade people to to travel with them. Or I think a lot of people just just walk places because this world isn't super big. It'd take a few days uh, to travel between towns, but I think um, that's not too much of a hassle for people. I think there's a big sense in this world that there is time, that there isn't a heap of pressure to to get things done in a hurry. You're just kind of taking care of yourself and your community, and that's all you really need to worry about. Okay, I think those are all the points that I wanted to cover. This, of course, is the foundations of stuff. I want to go through all these points again in my own time and, and detail out exactly these things. I need to properly develop the deities of this world, um, the actual um, structure of like rehabilitation systems, I need to pick out the populations of each town, all the numbers and stuff to go with these, to go with this, uh, the semantics of it all. But hopefully this is a little bit of insight into the process. Once you get into it, I don't think it's as difficult 
as people think. Before I started recording this, I was massively intimidated. Like, oh God, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. But the thing is, everything that you are creating is derived from those three points. The environments of your world, the past and the goals of your people, and from the aesthetic and the tone that you're going from. When you're keeping those in mind, most decisions that you're trying to make come quite logically. And I think staying true to these things are going to make your world feel more realistic. If you if you keep that kind of consistency throughout all of your decisions, it makes it make a lot more sense. So, hopefully this was helpful in some way. If you have any questions, or definitely if you have any ideas about this world, let me know. Because, trust me, I don't think this is going to be the end. And, just so you know, it took a lot of deciding, but uh, this world is called Poppy. I was calling it pastel for a long time because there are a lot of pastel colours and that's kind of the aesthetic that I was going for and reminding myself of that aesthetic by calling it pastel helped me to keep true to that tone. But I've decided that it's called Poppy just because I think that's cute. And you know what? Most of the decisions in this world has come from, yeah, that sounds cute. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I've had a good time and hopefully you have too and I hope you have a wonderful day. Goodbye! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.